Now, we come to the end of Abraham's life, and the supreme sacrifice that he made was he took that boy that God had given him, Isaac. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, Abraham had other children, but this was the one that's called the only begotten. And the word son's not in the original. He's the only begotten. Why? It's to him the promise was made. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now, God never asked Abraham to do that till he came to the end of his life. And the reason is he wouldn't have had faith to have done this. God will never test you above that you're able to stand the test. And so God never asked him to give up Ishmael. That is to sacrifice him on an altar. And you know why? Well, to begin with, he wasn't the right boy. And the second thing is, Abraham wouldn't have done it. You can put that down. Why, Abraham tried to beg God not to send him away. Let him keep him and let him make Ishmael the boy. You see, Abraham wasn't ready at that time to do that. And certainly at the beginning of his life, when Isaac was a baby, he never would have offered him either. You have to wait till he's about 33 years of age, and then he's ready to offer him. And here you have the testing of faith. Now, I'm going to look at Abraham a little bit differently than he's ordinarily looked at. And we always think of the great promises God made them. I'll give you this land, and I'm going to make multitudes come from you. Now, that's true. But what was it that Abraham got at the present moment of his life? What was it that he actually saw? He didn't even see the fulfillment of these great promises. Let me put this down, because what you have in Genesis is basic. It's germane to the rest of the Scripture. And what was it he gave to him? Well, he actually gave to him a home. Let's take a look here at this man, Abraham. They were just a young couple living there in Ur of the Chaldees. And one day, this young fellow, Abraham, said to that beautiful young girl, and she was that, the Scripture says she was. He said to her, I love you, and I want to marry you. And so they got married. And then Abraham came home because it was a home of idolatry. He came home and he said, the living God has called me. He wants me to leave this place. And I think Sarah said, well, you have a good business and your relatives all live here. Your friends are here. And by the way, where are you going? Abraham said, I don't know. He said, what do you mean God called you and you don't know? He said, he'd lead me. He'd lead me and I'm going out. Sarah said, I'll go with you. And they both went out, this young couple. They didn't have too much faith. They took Papa with them and some of the relatives. And so they came to Haran, and they hung around there till Papa Tira died. They buried him. Then Abraham moved into the land, and God appeared to him. And then God said to him, Abraham, I'm going to do all these things of promise. 
but I'm going to give you a son. Abraham and Sarah are going to have a son. Now, that's what is going to make the home. They're going to have a son. And first of all, may I say that you have here the basis of what would be, in that day, a godly home, the kind of home God wants young people to have. And we'd call it today a Christian home. These things are germane and they're basic. And God didn't give them a course or send them to a preacher for counseling. Frankly, we preachers have done too much counseling telling young people how they ought to do it. The thing is that we have been idealistic. God was very practical. He said, Abraham, if you're going to have the kind of home I want you to have, you're going to have to get away from Papa and Mama. And that's what God meant at the very beginning when he said, and of all things, he said to Adam and Eve, man will have to leave father and mother. Adam and Eve didn't even have a father and mother. But he said, you're going to have to leave. That is a great principle that's put down. And you know the easiest thing in the world to do, and I've been learning it myself, is I never thought that I would be a grandfather that would tell the parents how to raise their child. Didn't do so well myself, but I sure can tell them. Well, they'll make mistakes, but that's none of our business. They're going to have to make their mistakes too, because we made ours. And Papa and Mama is not to interfere with the home of the children. And God got Abraham about as far away from home as you could go. And none of the relatives are going to be able to interfere. I think that's primary to the building of a godly home. To begin with, for Abraham, it was a godless home that he left because it was a home of idolatry. Joshua makes that clear, that he came out of a home of idolatry. That was the first thing, you see. And then the second thing that God did with him. And these things are so important today because right now a great many rules and regulations are being given to young couples. And I don't want to be revolutionary or sound different today, but let's face it, all I'm trying to do is say what the Word of God says to do. You forget the rules and regulations until you're walking by faith. If you're a child of God, you're to walk by faith in that home. The father's to walk by faith, and the mother's to walk by faith. And you want to know something? The home will never be an ideal home. I get so sick today of hearing these folk tell about how they went to a counseling session, and now they have the most glorious home that you've ever heard of. Well, may I say to you, I've been married to my wife a long time. And you know that she and I disagree on many things. fact of the matter is, she's got a right to be wrong. And so we disagree sometimes. But we've always been able to, you know, to get to the place where I can put my arm around and tell her I love her, in spite of the fact she's wrong. May I say to you, friends, young person today, if you think you're going to start an ideal home, I think you're wrong. You're going to find out you're going to be tested. Abraham was tested, ran off to Egypt. And I'm of the opinion that all the way down there, Sarah says, Abraham, I don't want to go to Egypt. But they went to Egypt. And 
He almost lost Sarah down there, too, by the way. Lied about it, you see. That's not an ideal home, is it? May I say to you, then he came back. And when he came back, why, we find that he had trouble there with his nephew. Could maybe have left him back in her, the Chaldees. But he got rid of him, and he went down to Sodom and lived there. And now Abraham's left alone up in the hill country. And even then, neither one of them are, I would call, ideal. Abraham still doubts God. He didn't believe God ought to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And God had to make it clear to him that he was doing a righteous and just thing. And he had to make it clear to Sarah. And he gave her power to have a son. And then he gave him that little child in the home. And they are now prepared to raise that little fella in the home. And they brought him up in the home. May I say to you, friends, here I would say is God's home. The kind of home he wants you to have. If you think that somehow or another that putting up a few little rules that you're going to avoid all of the rough places and the hardships of life, you're wrong. You're going to find out that one day you'll argue with your wife. You're going to find out one day that you're going to have a problem with that child that you got. You're not going to have a thing that's ideal by any means. And how are you going to handle all of this, my friend? By faith. By faith. And when you and I reach the place that we're willing to put our child on the altar for God, then you and I have arrived. Here is a home that is just about as near to what God wants down here as you and I will be able to attain. And so, Christian friend today, if it's going hard with you and you're having your problems, may I say to you, God's trying to teach you something. And let God be your teacher. Don't run to the pastor and don't run and think you can take a course somewhere that's going to solve all your problems. You and I are going to have problems. But if we walk by faith, he'll see us through. Now we come to his son Isaac in verse 20. And we're told here, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And you'll notice that very little is said concerning Isaac, especially when it's in contrast to his father Abraham. And what can you say concerning Isaac? Well, actually, the thing that characterized his faith was willingness. By faith, Isaac, a grown man, he was in his 30s, probably 33, when his father Abraham offered him on the altar. And this certainly speaks of willingness. But notice here, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So that the one thing that is picked out of his life is this thing here that we call faith in just blessing his sons. Now, that is a very strange thing concerning this man here, because very frankly, Isaac was a well digger, and he'd dig a well. The enemy would take it away from him. He'd go down and dig another well. 
is in many ways a rather colorless individual. And the thing that characterized him is willingness. And he was willing to bless Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. And nothing in the immediate present that would cause him to bless them, however. Now we come down in verse 21 to a very colorful individual. And you have here the worship of faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Now, actually, you could say of both Isaac and Jacob that worship did constitute the same thing that constituted their father Abraham. But here, it says he worshiped leaning upon the top of his staff. Now, this man Jacob lived a life of faith, actually in relationship to his father and to his son, Joseph, and to his grandsons. And that is made clear here. The one thing picked out of his life is when he was dying. You've got to wait till you get to the end of this man's life before you can say that he's a man of faith. But at that time, he blessed both the sons of Joseph. They were his grandsons. And he worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Now, there's several things that can be said concerning him. You have here what I'm sure is an illustration of human nature. And it reveals that by grace are ye saved. If it had not been for the grace of God, Jacob would have been lost. He had no human merit, none whatsoever. And I'm not sure but what that's a picture of all of us today. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. It is said of Dr. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission, that when he was out on the mission field, a new missionary arrived, he and his wife, and Hudson Taylor had a way of emphasizing the fact that you're nothing. You and I, before God, we're nothing. And God is the only one that can take nothing and do something with it. And finally, the young fellow came to Dr. Taylor one day and said, you know, it's difficult for me to think that I'm nothing. Dr. Hudson Taylor said to the young man, he says, you're nothing. You can just take God's word for it. You don't need to believe it yourself. Just take God's word for it. Now, this man, Jacob, is a picture of human nature. And we hear today a great deal in psychology about prenatal care, natal care, and postnatal care, and how important these are in the life of an individual. The gynecologist and the psychologist gives a lot of emphasis to prenatal care, natal care, postnatal care. Now, prenatal is before birth, and natal care is the birth of the individual. The postnatal, of course, is after birth. 
Now, what can be said of Jacob? Well, it is said before he was born that the children struggled within her. Jacob, even at that time, was wrestling, trying to get the upper hand. And then at the time of the birth, he's still struggling. He came out last there, but he held on to the heel of his brother. He was a heel grabber, and he was that all of his life. And then you have the postnatal care, and that's after birth. And Jacob was a deceiver. He was a rascal. And in our study in Genesis, which was a long time ago, many of you that were with us at that time recall, I'm sure, the emphasis that I put at that time upon the fact that he was a rascal and that God, though, did transform his life. Now you have, first of all, in the life of this man, faith and relationship to his father. Well... He was a deceiver. God had promised him the blessing, and he couldn't wait. He had to take it by very deceptive methods. And then you have faith in relationship to his son Joseph. He was deceived in that connection. He was not the deceiver there, but he was deceived. And you will recall that this man Jacob, go back in his life, He left home. He spent that night in Bethel, very homesick, but no change had taken place in his life at all. And then you find out that he got down with his uncle Laban, and he's still using his wits. And then God had to stop him when he finally returned back to the land, and God wrestled with him that night at the brook Jabbok. And that night, why, God crippled him. He had to to get him. And then you see, therefore, that the very thing that he did, the sin he committed, now comes home to him in this boy Joseph. Joseph, his brethren, brought that very bloody coat of many colors and said to Jacob, is this the coat of your son? Do you recognize it? He began to weep, but the very way in which he had deceived, he was deceived in relationship of the son. The sins of the fathers are visited upon the children, and this is certainly an example of it. Now you see faith in relationship to his grandsons, and that was Manasseh and Ephraim, the sons of Joseph. And that's what is picked out here in the epistle to the Hebrews, and it's not until you get to the end of the man's life. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, he's on his deathbed. And now here is the first thing that you can lift out and say now, by faith, Jacob. He blessed both of the sons of Joseph, and he worshiped. And now for the first time, but it's too late, there'll be no obedience in his life. And the thing that's always interests me, he worshiped leaning upon the top of his staff. What was that staff? Well, you remember, he'd been crippled. And that staff enabled him to walk. Even when death came, this man who'd been a deceiver and all of that, he still wants to go. He did not want to lie down and die. 
And now you can say this of the man. There's no blessing in the life of Jacob. It was a life of sin and deception, chicanery and crookedness. And no blessing can ever eventuate from sin. I think that we as a nation have been humbled now in several places. And why? Because we as a nation have not been a good leader for the world. We are no leader at all. We need a leader. And then the second thing that can be said here, and this is the important thing for you and me, God can take any life and straighten it out. Where there is confusion and deception, if there is faith, and there's no merit in faith, faith is not our Savior. The faith must be anchored in Jesus Christ, and it's what enables us to lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have here faith operative in the life of Jacob, which you have to come to the end of his life. Now we come in verse 22 to Joseph, the son of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph. And by faith, Joseph, we're told here, when he died, he made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Now, this man Joseph, and I'm confident that the writer here in the Spirit of God could have picked many instances in the life of this man that would illustrate faith. I'm sure that you could pick out of the life of this man that time when he was down there and put into prison. You'd think that in Egypt that that would be the end. Many of us would cry out that time. But that's not chosen. And there's so many other instances in the life of this man Joseph. But actually, what a contrast he is to his father Jacob. We didn't whitewash Jacob. Now we can say this concerning Joseph. There are no faults or flaws in his life. He is a man that's been elevated to a high position in a foreign court. And there's probably no one in the entire Old Testament who is more a type of the Lord Jesus Christ than he is. And yet here's one man that's never used in Scripture as a type. But the analogy is striking. I wonder if I may just run down this rather hurriedly. He was the best beloved son, as the Lord Jesus was. He had a coat of many colors which set him apart from his brethren. And it gave him a lordship over his brethren. And he had a vision. The brethren thought he was a dreamer. And the Lord Jesus Christ, you will recall, came with a message that they thought he was a dreamer. And he obeyed his father. And the Lord Jesus said he'd come to do the father's will. His brethren hated him. And the Lord Jesus had said, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. And the Father sent him to seek his brethren. And the Lord Jesus came to this earth seeking the lost. And he found them in the field, and they were shepherds. And shepherds by night, you remember, came when the Lord Jesus was born. And they mocked this boy, Joseph, and they refused him. And that's the way that they 
treated him. And the same thing happened to the Lord Jesus. They plotted to kill him. And the analogy certainly follows through with the Lord Jesus. He was sold into slavery, sold for 30 pieces of silver. His coat was dipped in blood. And the vesture of the Lord Jesus Christ, they gambled for it with his own blood upon it. He was sold into Egypt, and God raised him up there to save the world. And the Lord Jesus went down into death. He was tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the Lord Jesus was. He became the Savior of the Gentile world. And the Lord Jesus has come to seek and to save all both Jew and Gentile. While on the throne, he gives bread to the people. And the Lord Jesus did that. He got a Gentile bride down in Egypt. And the Lord Jesus is calling a people out of this world to his name. And then you have the coming of the sons of Jacob down. And Joseph knows them, and he finally makes himself known to them. And someday the Lord Jesus will make himself known to his own brethren. The interesting thing about this man, he had faith in the dream that was given, faith in the pit in which he was placed, faith in Egypt, and that's the thing that buoyed him up. But at the end of his life, you think that he'd be satisfied with Egypt, but not this man. He says, when the day comes and the children of Israel leave this land, be sure and take my bones up. Well, why didn't they take his body at that time and bury it yonder in the land of Ephraim? Well, the reason, I think, is quite obvious. He was a national hero. But there came a day when there rose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And then when the children of Israel left, they took up his bones. And yonder at Shechem, up in the Samaritan country, They'll point out to you the tomb of Joseph there where his bones are buried. Well, they may or may not be there, but they were taken up and put in that land. So we have this record of this boy Joseph. Now we move down quite a few years, and the children of Israel are down in the land of Egypt. And verse 23, "...by faith Moses..." When he was born, was hid three months of his parents, because they saw he was a proper child. They were not afraid of the king's commandment. So that Moses had godly parents who were willing to take a real stand, by the way. And therefore, this boy Moses begins faith to be born, by the way. And then we read in verse 24, by faith Moses. Now you see the work of faith. When he was come to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You see, he was brought up in the palace of Pharaoh, and he would have been the next Pharaoh. And so you have faith to choose the right here. And he did that. Verse 25, "...choosing rather to suffer affliction." with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. And somebody else besides Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced. That was Moses. 
Now, verse 27, will you notice this? By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. Now he has faith to act. Faith leads to action, as we have said. These folk today that are everlastingly talking about, I believe, I believe, but do nothing. May I say to you, faith reveals itself in action. God saves without works, but the faith that saves has works, by the way. It produces works. And so this man here, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who's invisible. And then through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. You see, faith now to obey God. God said to do this, and he did that. And you have that exemplifying in the life of this man. And he forsook the pleasures of Egypt. And he now went out into the desert, and he's now come back, and he's going to deliver his people. Faith to obey God, dear. Now will you notice, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying or attempting to do were drowned. Now whose faith do we have here? Their faith? Faith of the children of Israel? Well, they had none. They said to Moses when they saw Pharaoh and his chariots coming, they said, let's get back to Egypt as quickly as we can. We made a mistake in leaving. It was Moses' faith who went down to the water's edge, spoiled it with that wand, and it was by his faith that the waters opened up and they marched over to the other side. And then they sang the song of Moses in the land. They were identified with Moses. But let's understand it was Moses' faith. Now, we leave that and we come to the time of Joshua. And in verse 30, "...by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days." And here you have the watch of faith. If you had met that man Joshua on about the fifth day that they marched around the city of Jericho, and you'd have said to him, "...well, it doesn't look like you're getting very far." He says, "...you just watch." And you would have said, "...well, why are you doing such a foolish thing? You're a general." has a whole lot of intelligence, and you're not getting anywhere. He said, you forgot that I saw the captain of the hosts of the Lord, and he told me that headquarters was not in my tent but in heaven, and I found out that I wasn't a general, that I happened to be a buck private in the rear ranks, and I was to take orders from him. And he said to march around, and I'm marching around. And you just watch. Those walls will come down. I'm following the strategy of someone who knows. And here you have the watch of faith. My, I tell you, that faith to believe God. And this man, General Joshua, had learned that. Now, friends, we come to the harlot Rahab. And I thought about calling this the weakness of faith in the life of this woman. But I'm very frank to say to you that I don't think 
that would be proper at all to call it the weakness of faith. I think in the life of this woman, you would have to call it the wonder of faith. By faith, we are told, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. Now, of course, her story is in connection with the story of the walls of Jericho. And you have in the story of the walls of Jericho, you have the watch of faith, that man that was leading those people around had found out that headquarters was in heaven and that the captain of the hosts of the Lord was really leading the group and that General Joshua was really more or less like a second lieutenant. And he was watching for those walls to come down. I'm not sure but what those on the inside after seven days were beginning to wonder what was going to happen. Now we know that inside that city was this woman Rahab. And we're told that by faith the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not. Many years ago a book appeared with the title Religion in Unlikely Places. Now I do not know if Rahab was included in that book or not. I never read the book. The title of it was very impressive to me. Religion in Unlikely Places. Well, certainly she should have been put in the book because that would be the last place in Jericho that you would look for faith. Now, she lived in a very wicked, pagan, heathen, city, Jericho. And not only did she live there, but she practiced the oldest profession. And it's been pretty much considered that those that practice it are sinners. Until recently, since we've come along with our new morality today, but this woman was a sinner. And yet we're told here by faith, a harlot Rahab perish not with them that believe not. Now, I'm sure that the mayor of the city and a great many of those that were in high position felt like that they were good enough to have been saved. But they were not. We are told they perish in the city because of just one reason. They did not believe. Now, the way that God had moved in relation to this city actually was very generous. Oh, I know the critic finds a great deal of fault with God for destroying the people in Jericho. I had a professor when I was in college, a liberal college, and a liberal professor, and he just wept crocodile tears because of what happened to the people in the city of Jericho. The thing that always disturbed me about this professor was he showed very little interest in other people, including students, by the way. I happened to be one of his students. Showed very little interest. But he could really work up a lather when it came to the people in Jericho. 
that they were destroyed. Now, let's look at this for just a few moments and see actually what this woman Rahab did, because she did something, by the way. She expressed her faith in a very definite way. Now, when the city was ready to be destroyed, the people of Israel had crossed over Jordan. And when that word got to Jericho, the city was shut up immediately. That is, the gates were closed, because they never dreamed that during the flood season that that great host of people could be brought across the river at flood tide. There was no bridge for them to get over. And the river was on a rampage at that time. And how in the world would you get the company over? So they knew they didn't have to worry until after it was all over. That is, the flooding season. Then they'd have time to worry. But now they're over. And the city of Jericho apparently has been made aware of the method that was used. But actually, God gave the city an opportunity to see if they had turned in faith to him. Joshua would send spies into the city, and there was a harlot there, and she practiced this oldest of the arts. She came in contact with these men. I have a notion she made a business proposition to them. I do not know whether they accepted it or not. I do know this. They made it very clear that they were on a mission and that they needed protection, that God was going to give the city to them. They at least gave her that much information. And so she took them in and actually hid them on the roof. I suppose she risked her own life when she did that. But she asked for one favor from these men. She said, when you take this city, I want you to remember me and my family. I want you to save us. And they made that promise. And they said, you put out that scarlet thread. And when Joshua took the city, he was very careful that they save this woman and save the household. Now, her testimony went something like this. Back in the book of Joshua, in the second chapter, verse 9, I read, And she said unto the man, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and what ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom ye utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt. Neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above, and in earth beneath. Now, that's a strange statement coming from this woman, but it is a tremendous revelation of the fact that God didn't arbitrarily destroy the city of Jericho. You see, for 40 years, word had been filtering into Jericho about a people who at that time crossed 
the Red Sea. Now, she said, we heard that. That was 40 years ago. We heard that. And I, for one, believe. And the others believe the facts. But they never believed in God. They never trusted the living God. And then later on, they heard how God was leading them and that he'd given them a victory on the other side, Jordan, against the Amorites. And this city should have profited by that. And now they've crossed miraculously the Jordan River. And here they are parked right outside the door, actually, of Jericho. And they are going to do a very unusual thing. What was God doing? He was giving this city an opportunity to believe him, to trust him, to turn to him. Now, I think it ought to be obvious to any person that if God saved this woman who believed him, then he would have saved the mayor of Jericho, and he would have saved anyone in the city of Jericho if they had trusted him as this woman trusted him. And therefore, God would have saved. You see, God saw them all on one basis in the city of Jericho. He saw them all as sinners. They all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. She just happened to be a more open sinner than probably the mayor was. I do not know about the mayor of the city, but I'm of the opinion that his private life would not stand inspection. And I'm sure that could be true of many others in that city. They were open sinners, but they had an opportunity to trust God. And had they believed God, and they had 40 years to decide whether they would believe God or not. Now, after 40 years, they didn't believe him. And I wish that that professor was still alive. I have a question I would love to have asked him. I didn't know it at the time, but I do now. And the question would be, God gave them 40 years to make up their mind whether they would trust him or not. Only one woman made up her mind to trust God, and God saved her. And it's quite obvious, since who she was, that anybody else would have been saved if they'd trusted God. Now, do you think 40 years is not quite long enough? Do you feel that probably God should have given them 41 years, 42 years, my friend, after 40 years, if they're not going to believe God, they're not going to believe God. God is long-suffering. This is obvious. He's patient. He's not willing that any should perish. Even a harlot that'll trust him, God'll save her. And so she could say, we have heard. And it had an effect upon the people. The people believed the fact, but they didn't trust God. If they had, they would have been saved. Now, this woman, evidence she believed God because she said to the spies, you're going to take the city, and when you do, I want you to save me. And she took a step of faith, and that step of faith, she risked her life. You see, faith began to move. Faith goes into action. Faith does not sit on the sidelines. And so this woman, here Rahab, 
she perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. You see, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We have heard what God has done through you, and we believe it. That is, she said, I trust him. And I trust him to the extent that I'm willing to risk my life. And she evidenced the faith that she had. And I tell you, friends, you see in Rahab, you see in this woman the wonder of faith that today in a lost world, God doesn't see this group of people so much better than another group of people. God sees them all as sinners. And when anyone will turn to God, God will save them. How wonderful this is, and what a marvelous picture of faith that we have. Now I want to move down to verse 32 here, and I read now verse 32 of chapter 11 of Hebrews. And what shall I more say? Now, the writer at this particular juncture has come to a place in the Word of God, in the Old Testament, what can he say now? He can go any direction, and he can list heroes, if you want to call them that of faith. He can demonstrate how faith has worked in the lives of men and women. And now he brings in a list, and he makes it very clear that he's not able to discuss any one of these, but that any one of these could be put and is put here in this marvelous chapter. He says, For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Now, here again, you see the war of faith now in the lives of these men. Not one of them is dealt with in detail at all. They all have something in common. Everyone that's mentioned here was a ruler. These men that are mentioned, like Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and Jephthah, and Samuel, they were all judges. And David was a king. So they were all rulers, and they were all engaged in a war for God. And each one of them won that by faith. And you have the story of Gideon. And if there ever was a man who had a weak faith, it was Gideon. In fact, Gideon was a very weak man. A great many people today talk about that we have in our church just a little Gideon's band. That's all we have. Well, what they really mean is they have a small number. But, friends, it's not the small number that was impressive about Gideon's band. It was the faith of these men. And this man Gideon actually is a man that had very little faith. And I'm not going into detail with each one of them, but note for just a moment this man Gideon. He was a judge at the time of the Midianites. Midianites had taken the land, and they couldn't even harvest their crops. The Midianites had taken it from them. And this man, Gideon, you find him as a young man. 
is down by the wine press harvesting grain, and that's where he should not be. You see, the grain was taken to the top of the hill, pitched up in the air, and then the wind would drive the chaff away. And the wind blows in that land in the afternoon. I had occasion to notice that in particular again when I was over there. My, they had quite a bit of wind. This was in the month of June and was the time of the harvesting, by the way. And they, many places, harvest still the same way. We saw them pitching up grain in one place there, and the chaff was being blown away. Wind comes up in the afternoon. Gideon was a coward. He took the grain down there by the wine press. That's way down in the valley. Nobody can see it. That's the lowest place. And you talk about an operation of frustration. Watch Gideon down there. He pitches the grain up. There's no wind to blow the chaff away. And you know what happens? The straw comes falling around his neck. And I can't think of anything that would be more discouraging than that to pitch up the grain and have all the straw down your back. Well, that was Gideon. And it was at that time the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, Thou mighty man of valor. And that wasn't really the proper address for Gideon because he didn't think the angel was talking to him. I think he looked up and said, Who, me? Why, he's the biggest coward of all. And he's willing to admit it. Why, he says, I belong to the smallest tribe. My family is the small family in the tribe. And I'm the smallest potato in the family. Why, you pick the smallest pebble on the beach. I'm a nobody. God says, it's the reason I picked you is because you're a nobody. I want you to believe me. And you'll find out God began to strengthen the faith of that man till the day came with 300 he was able to get a victory over the Midianites by faith, Gideon. Faith operated in the life of this man. And today, how many people, even that are Christians, feel like that there must be some great big show, some big demonstration, some big meeting, if it's going to be of the Lord? May I say to you that God just doesn't move quite like that. I'm of the opinion that right today, the greatest work for God is being done by individuals and little groups across this land and even throughout the world. I have bumped into groups. I was amazed in Lebanon to meet a man. He is a Gideon, by the way, he belongs to the Gideon, and he's an active Christian layman, has a real witness there for Christ. You don't hear much about him at all. He's not one that's getting publicity. And then in the land of Israel, there's a very wonderful Hebrew Christian. I could tell you about him, but my friend... I don't think he'd even want his name mentioned. He's been persecuted a great deal, but he's a real witness for God there today. May I say to you, there are a great many Gideons about today, and they move by faith. And I believe that it's not the size of the meeting and the greatness and the publicity and all of that. I think that today God is moving 
in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And so we have here Gideon and Barak and Samson. I don't know whether I'd have put Samson in the list or not. Samson was a real failure as far as his service was concerned, but he did believe God. And there was a time when the Spirit of God came upon him and he began to deliver Israel. He never completed the job, though. And Jephthah, and then a David. Oh, we could just stop and talk about David and of Samuel and of the prophets. But he makes it very frank. He says, the time would fail me. And friends, I see the clock moving very fast right at this moment, and the time would fail me. Now, notice what these did. This is the war of faith. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Now, we know who that refers to. It refers to Daniel. And he hadn't been mentioned by name yet. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. War of faith. And these are the victors that we have mentioned. But we're going to have another class mentioned next time. And these are the ones that we don't hear about much today either. They are the ones that don't get the outward victory at all. And they are the ones today that, to my judgment, if you want heroes, they're really God's heroes. Now, frankly, I feel like we've come to the high point in this 11th chapter because we have seen faith that has been exercised in the lives of men and women in all ages, under all circumstances, all conditions, and the wonderful victories that were won, the wars that were fought. And we read in verse 35 now, and we're seeing here the wideness of faith. My, it has moved into every area of life. It says here, women receive their dead raised to life again. And you remember the widow of Zarepta, where Elijah stayed. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. In other words, we're talking now about martyrs, and listen how he begins verse 36, and others. Now we're going to talk about others. Others that are in contrast to these that we have been talking about. And these others, will you listen to them? They had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted or tested. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens, and caves of the earth. Now, here's another group of people. They didn't gain great victories out on the battlefield. They didn't move onto the wide deck of life triumphant. They didn't enter the arena of life before great audience 
and perform great feats for God. These were the ones that are others. And they had trials and mockings and scourgings and bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. It is said that that was the fate of Isaiah. And, of course, all we have is tradition for that. But Jerome is very insistent that it was Isaiah that was sawn asunder. And that's a cruel, horrible death. And they were tested, tempted, and they were slain by the sword. Now, I want you to notice a contrast here. Back up in 34, when we were talking about the victories that were won, of how they subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They escaped the edge of the sword, but here the others, they were slain with the sword. Now, how do you explain this? One group by faith, they escaped the edge of the sword. What about the other group? They didn't escape the edge of the sword. They were slain with the sword. So here we have a different group altogether. And how are you going to explain this group? Well, here we come to something that I want to say to you is still to me a very difficult subject. And it is, why do the righteous suffer? Well, I know it's easy if you're enjoying good health today to toss it off and says, well, God is testing them. We're going to see that in the next chapter. But here, these people went through all of this by faith. And they didn't look at it that they were being tested and that type of thing. They endured it because they did it by faith. They could trust God when the day was dark and when the nights were long and when the suffering was great, when there was no deliverance for them at all. And others, others were tortured. Others were slain with the sword. We're talking about others today. Now, it's wonderful to be able to get up and quote a verse of Scripture like Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. And then in verse 19 of Psalm 34, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Jehovah delivereth him out of them all. That's wonderful. That's wonderful, friends. And God does that. But what about the others that didn't escape the edge of the sword? What about those that suffered? And Stephen could look at the religious rulers of his day and say, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Prophets never had it easy, friends. And Stephen himself was the first martyr to the Christian faith. And you have here, they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. That's what Stephen told him before they stoned him to death. And when the Lord called Saul of Tarsus, that brilliant young Pharisee, he says, I'll show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And the Lord Jesus made it very clear. He said in John 16:33, In the world ye shall have trouble, but be a good cheer. I've overcome the world. And Paul and Barnabas, when they went out, 
They went out confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much trouble, enter into the kingdom of God. May I say to you, a great many people demonstrate their faith by winning battles, by being delivered. And then there are others, multitudes of them, and they've suffered for the faith. Down through the long history of the church, there have been the Waldensians, the Albigenses, and the Huguenots, and the Scotch Covenanters, and there have been others. I had the privilege of baptizing Martha Snell Nicholson, the poet, as she was a member of my church in downtown Los Angeles that I served. And she suffered. She suffered so that I baptized her in a bathtub. You couldn't touch her without her screaming it hurt so. That woman went through untold suffering before she passed on into the presence of the Lord. And today they're lying on beds of pain right now listening to me. Literally thousands of people. And it's nice to read this about walking out on this stage of life and getting a great victory. And it's wonderful to be able to report that you've been healed. Well, what about those that are suffering on beds of pain? What about that unknown missionary out yonder on the field today? And many of them are suffering for Jesus' sake. And there's many a minister today that's suffering for Jesus' sake. And there's many a person today that's suffering for Jesus' sake. What about them, friend? May I pass on to you just some little something that I've learned recently. It illustrates this, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as you're partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. And you remember Paul made the statement to the Colossians. He says, it's necessary for me to fill up the sufferings of Christ. And you begin to ask to yourself the question, what do you mean, fill up the sufferings of Christ? Didn't Christ's death, wasn't that redemption for us, complete, perfect? And it certainly was. But my friend, there are certain sufferings even of the Lord Jesus that were not redemptive sufferings, the sufferings he had in this life down here. His redemptive sufferings took place on the cross, and none of us can add anything to that. But you and I, if we're going to stand for him, I'm of the opinion that we may have to pay a price for it, and some of us may have to suffer just a little. I want to pass this then on to you, and will you forgive me for being personal again? Many of you know that I had a bout with cancer. We hope it's over. We don't know that it's over. The doctor gives me no assurance that it might not reoccur again, but so far it hasn't, and I thank God for that. I rejoice in his goodness and grace and mercy to me. And I've gone around, and I have gloried in that. I promised him that I would give him all the glory if he'd heal me, and he did. And I guess I talked pretty loud and I had a great deal to say on this radio. And then I began to get letters. And I have received literally hundreds of letters from people that write. And somebody says, 
I have terminal cancer. Pray for me. I have no hope. And I've tried to remember all them in prayer. And then I get a letter from a loved one and says they passed on. And then I hear from another party and she says my husband, he had cancer also. And he died with cancer. He suffered a great deal. And so I began to look at this thing again, that God doesn't always raise you up. And just because a few people can even go to a faith healer, very few people there even respond that they've been healed. Just think of the thousands today that are in hospitals. Think of the thousands lying on beds of pain. My friend, I'm thinking of the others right now, the others. And you know what the Lord did? He he gave me diverticulosis. You say, you mean you blame that on the Lord? I sure do. I think he said, I'm going to give you a thorn in the flesh so you keep your mouth shut. You talk too much. You're going around boasting about the way I've moved in your behalf, and I have, but I just want you to know one thing that I don't move in the lives of everybody else. After all, they are the greatest saints. They are the ones that really suffer. They are the ones that know what real faith is. You don't know what it is to trust me in a time like that. You know, he put me flat on my back, and I want to be very frank with you. I never suffered like I've suffered diverticulosis. I never even knew what the thing was before, but I can tell you what it is now. And then you know what was added to that, as if that was not enough? He gave me a bout with hepatitis. And I want to say to you, friends, I felt like he was against me. And I want to be frank with you. I went to him and talked this thing over again. And you know it was at that particular time that I came here to this 11th chapter of Hebrews. And I read, and others, others, they were slain with the sword. Others suffered, and they did it with faith. My friend, may I say to you today, whether you can walk up and give your testimony of how God healed you, and I can do that too, I can join you, and whether you can go up and say how successful you've been in business, I want to remind you that there are multitudes of God's saints today that are suffering, that are paying a tremendous price, And you know how they're doing it? They're doing it by faith, and they've got lots more faith than I have. I think they're lots choicer saints than I am, and maybe you are today. And I have been humbled by many of these letters as I've read of some wonderful saint tucked away, way off yonder in an out-of-the-way place, that you have to get to them by horseback, and then you'd have to get off and walk to get to where they are, but they are there for God today, and they're suffering. I say to you, here's a company, and they're just called others, others. I don't want you to forget the others today, and that they are living by faith and dying by faith too, by the way. And their suffering has ended for many of them, and they've gone already into the presence of the Lord, never to have to die again, others. I love that. This means something new to me. I hope it might mean something new to you. Now let me move on. I'm reading now at verse 38. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and 
caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Now, what promise is it that they did not receive? God made many promises, and many of them received the promises that he made to them. But the promise is that God has promised he'd raise them, and there'd be a kingdom established here on this earth. They have not received that promise, because God today is calling out a people to his name, as he says here in Hebrews, of bringing many sons home to glory, and... We're told here the reason for that. They've all obtained a good witness, a good report through faith. They received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us. And he had us in mind. Wasn't that gracious of him? That they without us should not be made perfect. And God today is very patiently calling the people out of this world to his name. That's the church. And until that church is completed, he's just going to keep calling them out because I think he's calling many out of this world in which we live, and that's what we have here. Now, you have the world and the worth of faith. Now, let me say this, and I hope I'll not be misunderstood. It's been my privilege in my ministry up to the present hour to have spoken to a great many young people. When I was a young preacher, I was known as a young people's speaker. And I have been to young people's conferences and been with them. And as I got older, I found out I was a little impatient with them. But they still invite me. Just recently, I've spoken to over a thousand of them in one session. And I've had several sessions with the group. And I have invitations to go and speak to many groups that I'm not able to accept the invitation. Now, I say all of this, that I may make this statement, and the statement is this, and I don't want to be misunderstood, and you listen very carefully to it. I do not want to hear the testimony of a young person who's been saved a week or three months. Nobody says, wait a minute, you read letters from folk like that. Yes, I do. I rejoice in it. Don't misunderstand. I got a letter from a party that told me about a man that accepted the Lord Jesus under my ministry in about 1943, right here in Pasadena, California, where I live now. He died. And he had a marvelous testimony given to him at the funeral of what a wonderful man of faith that he was. You see, what I'd like to say to the young person, and I said to a group the other day, they went out to witness, and they told about how many accepted Christ, and they said, isn't that wonderful, Dr. McGee? I said, well, it'll be wonderful if three years from today or 30 years from today you could come back to me and say that they all lived and these all died by faith. You see, I've come to this place now, and I'd like to finish this chapter on this note here because it's a very important note. Some people think faith is something that's untried. Faith is something that you can't really be sure of, that it doesn't really rest upon a foundation. Friends, here are a company of witnesses. Many of them live long lives. They live by faith, and they found out that it worked. 
Now, today, and again, let me be personal here in closing. I do not give apologetic messages. I was asked to speak to a group of young people not too long ago. This was another group. And they suggested that I bring a message or two on proving the Bible is the Word of God. And I said to that party, I said, I don't think I'll bring messages like that. I don't bring apologetic messages anymore. I just bring messages from the Bible. I let the Holy Spirit do that. And so I went and spoke to this group, and I didn't attempt to prove to them the Bible's the Word of God. I just preached the Word of God to them. And I have from that group now half a dozen letters from members of that group telling how their faith was strengthened. Now, my friend, may I say this to you today, and I want to say it to you very candidly, I don't need to have the Bible proved to me right now. You don't have to tell me about how wonderful faith is. You don't have to tell me whether this thing works. I don't believe it works. I know it works. You know how I know it? I'm an old man now. I've been at this a long time. And I want to say to you, it works. And I know it works. You see, even when they made the airplane and the thing flew off, there were those who said that they didn't believe it. Couldn't believe their eye. Well, there are a lot of folk today that are just as blind as a bat spiritually. They say, well, you know, I want it proven to me. My friend, if you are honest, and we're willing to put away the sin in your life and will turn to Jesus Christ and trust Him as Savior, I'd like to talk to you three years from today. I think then that nobody need to prove to you anything. You know it works. And there are multitudes around us right now, and many of you that are listening in can say amen to what we have said. You already know faith works. It's operated. It's real. It's something that's genuine. My friend, why don't you get with it? Why don't you get out of the realm of make-believe today and come into the realm of reality and find out what Jesus Christ can really do for your life? Until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved. <laughs> 